who have to essentially be a Jew, but then also accept Jesus Christ as, as the way to salvation. You had to combine those two. If we looked at it today, it would be like uh, believing in Jesus, but doing all of the stuff that the Pharisees did, okay? Probably most Christians at Philippi were not swayed by the legalists regarding salvation. Again, this is a solid church. This is a church that Paul encourages and was encouraged by. And so they probably did not get caught up in in, uh, the, the hurdles that the Judaizers were putting in front of salvation, but it could have affected their, their concept of sanctification or, or of a, a Christian living. Some of the Philippians were saying that in order to be a Christian, one had to believe in Christ, but also uh, to be a, a spiritual Christian, a spiritually mature Christian, one had to keep the ceremonial laws and the traditions of the Jews. Paul's point in chapter 3 of of the book of Philippians is to show essentially how ridiculous legalism is in any form, whether it's to save, whether it's for salvation, or to sanctify. So Paul's Paul's really antidote to legalism is, is a life that is occupied by and dominated by and consumed by Jesus Christ. So essentially, what they're teaching is legalism. Right? You have to do all these outward, external things, much like what the Pharisees taught with Jesus. Right? You have to do all of these things and abstain from all of these things. And if you do that, then you're a mature Christian. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's wrong. A mature Christian is absolutely consumed by Jesus Christ absolutely loves Jesus, wants wants nothing more or nothing less than a perfect fellowship with Jesus Christ. That is what a mature Christian wants. And and when someone wants that, then they're eager to obey what Jesus taught. Okay, so it's not about these external things. It's about internally where your faith is, internally where your love is. And so that's what Paul's going to teach, how it uh, it, it worked itself out in, a, in kind of a practical life. Uh, let, me, let me share this. They, they taught a system of man-made rules and rituals and customs and traditions, which they were distinctly Jewish, but they were not biblical. Okay, remember when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was constantly attacking the Pharisees and the teachers for, for essentially um, twisting and perverting God's law, the Old Testament. And that's what, that's what the Judaizers are still doing. They're still teaching essentially what the Pharisees were teaching. For them, for the Judaizers, if a person was circumcised, if they obeyed the ceremonial laws and kept the traditions of Judaism, uh, then that person was spiritually mature. And so if they did all of these things, if they made it appear as though they did all of these things and they cared about all of these things, then they were spiritually mature, then that person had arrived and he had achieved everything. There was really nowhere else to go. The result was they became proud uh, and and complacent. They essentially sat back and, and were done. That was it. For all practical purposes, they thought they had 
reach some state of sinless perfection because they did or didn't do certain external things. What was happening was that um, many, many of, the, of the Philippian Christians were being influenced by this false teaching, a type of sinless perfectionism was, was kind of creeping into the church. And so they understood where their salvation came from through Christ alone, but then they, they started getting uh, led astray and saying that a mature Christian will do all this stuff. A mature Christian will still keep the ceremonial laws. A mature Christian will act like a Jew. And that's not what Christ taught. Gentile Christians in the church were beginning to think that they had to act like a Jew and, and observe all the customs and ceremonies of the Jews if they wanted to be mature. That's what they were being taught. So, the result of, of this legalism is um, obviously division, um, but also complacency. Once a legalist shows up at his own standard of righteousness, there's essentially nowhere else that he's going to go. He's, he's going to view himself as having arrived, and that's what happened. Paul uses his own life to refute this approach. He uses his own life, his own faith, to refute the Judaizers. Paul shows he has not attained full spiritual maturity. Think about that for a second. Think about who's saying that. This is the Apostle Paul some 30 or 40 years after he comes to Christ. He's saying that he is not fully spiritually mature. This is a man who has probably done more for the church of Jesus Christ than any person in history, the Apostle Paul. And here he is, he's, you're going to see, he's, he's saying he has not attained it. He is not perfect. He has, he has not done this. He is not perfectly spiritually mature. And Paul is, is so faithful and so honest and so humble that he doesn't sugarcoat his sins. He doesn't give excuses for his sins, but he doesn't hide them either. He doesn't pretend like they don't exist. They're there, and he hates them, and he hates the fact that he can't control them, which you would, you would see that in the book of Romans Paul talks about. But all he wants is Jesus. That's where his eyes are. And so that's, that's what we're going to see. So let's, let's, uh, let's read. We'll read verses 12 to 14, and then we're going to tear it apart. All right, so verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3 uh, says this, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. So let's, let's just start, start going through it. Um, not that I have already obtained this. That's, that's what he begins in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. Paul attacks perfectionism by denying it. He essentially saying it, it doesn't exist, right? So for Paul, there's no such thing as the perfect Christian life, at least not, not in this life. At no time, at no time are Christians sinlessly perfect, or, or have, have their sin, at no time have Christians had their sin natures eradicated. It, it's there. 
Now, in the beginning of 12, not that I have already obtained this, right? The this points back to verse 10. Okay, so let's read verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's through verse 11 as well. Paul admits he has not, he doesn't have a perfect fellowship with Christ in, in his own life. He fell short of, of what he could be and what he should be in his walk with Christ. He's admitting that here. And again, it's, it's vitally important that you remember who's saying this, okay? So you remember who's saying that they have not lived the perfect life, not even since he came to Christ. Okay, so, all right, so, um, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. That's what he's going to continue, or am already perfect. So, contrary to the Judaizers, the, the heretics, and their, their legalistic system of perfection, Paul says he's not perfect. You have the Apostle Paul, again, remembering who he is, he's essentially saying, I am not perfect, Right? Uh, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. I am not perfect. The word perfect here means uh, like fully complete or mature. Paul says he fell short of being complete and mature, of a complete and mature fellowship with Christ. Because even as a saved man, even as an apostle of Christ, hand-selected by Jesus himself, he still had sin in his life. It was still there. The struggle was with sin and, and fear and doubt was not over for Paul. He, he had made, obviously, great gains in his life, um, in, his, in his faith and, and all of these things, but the goal was still ahead of him. He had not attained it. He was still striving and moving forward. He had still room to improve. There, was, there were still areas where, where he could improve in his faith and grow in his love for Jesus. Put it, you know, Paul was satisfied with Christ, but he was not satisfied with the quality of his life and his, his depth of or his, his relationship with Christ, okay? So he was satisfied in Jesus. He saw Jesus as perfect and, and kind of the answer to all of his issues, but he was not satisfied with his own relationship with Jesus, okay? Paul, the Apostle Paul, shows us here in Philippians 3 that he felt inadequate in his Christian life, which points really the, of the reality of of sin and, and his, his need for a more, uh, more dependence on Christ. That's what he's telling us. That's what he's telling the Philippian church. That's what he's telling us. And so as the Judaizers come in and say, you have to do all this stuff and then, then you'll be perfect. You'll got it. It's taken care of. Paul comes in and says, I don't have it taken care of. I, I'm not perfect. I've not achieved this. I love Jesus and I know he's God and I know he's perfect and I know he's all things. But my relationship with him is not perfect because I sin and I damage that relationship. 
That's what Paul's saying. He's going to continue. He says, but I press on. I press on. Literally translated, this would say, I constantly press on. I'm I'm continuing on. Press on, it it really is an athletic term. Uh, It's talking about a runner who gives his all to win a race. Everything that, that a runner has is giving it in this race. Paul was was constantly seeking a deeper life of fellowship with Jesus. He's constantly seeking greater moral and ethical changes in his own life as a Christian. At no point in his life was he just satisfied with, with how things were going. He always wanted more of Jesus. He's going to continue on to, to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul's now talking, uh, he's referring back to when he got saved, to his salvation experience, right? Uh, it's, a, it's a very famous uh, passage on the, the Damascus Road experience, we'd say. Um, Paul met Christ on a road. Paul was actually traveling to go imprison and persecute Christians. And so he's going to do that. He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. He thinks Christians should be in prison or killed. And so that's where Paul is going. He's, he's going to do that. And Jesus interrupts his life. Jesus invades, right? right? So uh, Jesus uh, comes to him and he sees a bright light and, and he, he essentially uh, saves Paul at that point. Before his conversion, he was proud, he was religious, he was self-righteous, and he, was, he hated Jesus. Paul, Paul did not want to change until he met Christ. Or maybe we should say that until Christ met Paul. It was Christ who took the initiative to save Paul. Christ intervened into Paul's life, and he saved him. The starting point in, in, in Paul's salvation was when Christ intervened and, and Christ, uh, Christ seized him and gave him a purpose. And then Paul pressed on in his life and, and he, he pursued to, uh, to live for Christ and to glorify Christ. And, and as time went on, his faith increased, his love for Jesus increased. His Christ-likeness increased. In other words, the decisions that he was making, the way that he was living uh, were, were designed to be like Christ, to live a sinless, perfect life. That's how he was living. That's how, that's how he was transformed. Look, you know, there, there, are, some, there, there are people that we all know and, and, uh, and some in this room who, who have never had an experience like this, who have never come to Christ. And they'll say, look, I go to church, I read my Bible, I say my prayers, I live a decent life, I try to help other people. And the response is, that, you know, those are, those are good things, but those things don't save you. Look, reading, reading your Bible is a good thing. I would never recommend you stop. 
But reading your Bible doesn't save you. Helping other people doesn't save you. It's good. It's great. But it doesn't save you. Living a decent life doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. Jesus and Jesus alone saves you. There are many people that do all of this stuff, live a decent life, help other people, read their Bible, say their prayers before bedtime and a meal, but they're not Christians. They're not Christians. You can't start the Christian life until you have met Christ. You can't start the Christian life by helping other people. You can't start the Christian life simply because you read the Bible. You start the Christian life when you meet Christ, when you meet Jesus, when you submit to Him as God and Savior, the one who laid His life down for your sins. Christ must seize you for salvation, and you must respond by faith in Him. That's how it works. That's the start of Christianity. You can't put the cart before the horse. He's going to continue in verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul here concludes that that he had not arrived to a a total spiritual maturity even decades after uh, the Damascus Road experience. This is after he's an apostle, after he has done incredible things. This is after he's been uh, beaten and drug out of cities and, and, and tortured because of his faith and his preaching and his ministry. Paul says, I've, I've, I've not done it. I'm not there yet. He admits again that he fell short of what he could be or what he should be as a Christian. He's not sugarcoating his sins. He's not saying, look, don't worry about it. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. He's not finding excuses for for why his sins really aren't sins. He's not looking at it and saying, well, you know, my particular experience and in my context, I I did this because that person did that, so really I didn't sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm not there. I'm not there. It's it's not perfect. I'm going to continue moving forward. I'm going to continue repenting when I do sin. I'm going to continue growing in my faith. Jesus is perfect and Jesus is sufficient. But I'm not. And he doesn't hide that. For some reason, we like to hide that. For some reason, we like to pretend as though we, we don't sin, as though everything is okay, as though you know, our circumstances are unique. So what the Scriptures call sin really isn't a sin in our case. He's going to continue on. Verse 13. But I do consider, um, let's see it. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Again, Paul goes back to uh, the illustration of a runner. He compares the runner who's, who's trained and prepared and disciplined to the Christian who, who's uh, persevering in Christ. So a Christian has, has one passion in life to win the Christian race through fellowship with Christ. That, that's the goal of the Christian. The, the, the true Christian, that is the goal, to win the Christian race. Now, 
Modern Christians like to say we do that, we win the race by morality, by, by doing the right thing. Right? If, if I just have enough self-discipline, or if I try hard enough, then I win the race. If I stay away from all these sinful things and I move towards all of these righteous things and I have more of these than I do of those, then I win the race. I'm good. So I'm, I'm going to stay away from all of this and I'm going to run towards this. The problem is these are external things. What the scriptures tell us is to run toward Jesus. Who cares about the other stuff? Or I shouldn't say who cares about the other stuff. The other stuff does matter. It just doesn't matter as much as Christ. Put it that way. Don't focus on the, these secondary issues. Focus on Jesus, and then the secondary issues fall into place. That's how it works. The passion for the Christian is Jesus. It's a love for Jesus, to grow in your faith for Jesus. Then he's going to continue. Still in verse 13, uh, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. All right, so forgetting what lies behind. Paul forgot completely uh, the sins of his unsaved life. He, he's not concerned about it anymore. Okay, and so uh, we know that Paul was, he was not a good man. He, he was not working towards Christ. He was not uh, concerned about pleasing uh, God. He, he was a Pharisee. He was a legalist. He, he did some terrible things. He persecuted Jesus' church. And Paul gets saved. And what he's essentially saying is, look, I forgot about what happened back then. I've been transformed. I'm a new creation. Things are different now. I forget what, what lies behind because Jesus forgave me. He attempted to, to essentially erase them from his mind because he was completely forgiven by Christ. That is a hard thing to do. When we remember our, our lives, we remember the sins that we've committed, we remember what we've involved ourselves in, and it's bad, and it's terrible, and it's painful, and it's sinful— and we remember those things, and then we remember the God that we serve, the holy and perfect and wonderful God who knows our heart. And then we become ashamed. But then we remember that that, that holy, perfect, wonderful God that knows our hearts better than we do forgave us. And he forgave us completely for everything that we did. And it's beautiful. So uh, we look at it and we say, look, if, if God can forgive me, for that, that mess that, I, that I've left behind me, if God can forgive me from that, then, then I don't need to look at it anymore. Then I need to look forward of what's, at what's to come. Because Christ died for all sins, no matter how great or how small. Christ died for them all. A Christian cannot constantly be looking back if he wants to move forward. When you run, uh, if you've ever been involved with track or cross-country or any of that stuff, uh, you're taught, right, right? As soon as you start racing, you don't look back. If someone's behind you, you don't look at them. You don't turn around. You lose. You can lose two or three seconds in a race just looking back at who's right behind you. Don't worry about that person. Worry about what's in front of you. Worry about the finish line. Worrying about get what, where you're going. It's essentially what he's saying here. Keep your eyes forward. Keep your eyes forward. Paul forgot about his failures in his past, but he also forgot about his success and his victories. 
Paul was a brilliant man, and he was, he was kind of a young, up-and-coming Pharisee as, as far as, as his context was concerned. I mean, he was, he was on his way up. I mean, he, he was a successful person when he got saved, and all that changed. And Paul forgot it because he saw something greater in Jesus Christ. A legalist who, who felt he had arrived at perfection will, will look back constantly looking back at what he's done, what he's accomplished. Look at what I've done. Look at my successes. Look at the things that I've avoided. That's what a legalist does. A legalist focuses on the past and, to be honest, ignores the future. Paul did the opposite. He would not live in the past. He was determined to move forward, and that's what he's telling us to do. Look forward to Jesus Christ. Look forward as you grow in Christ. Look forward to, to heaven, to eternity, to when, when our fellowship and our relationship is perfect. Don't look pat. Don't look behind you. And then in 14, you arrive at perfect maturity. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal. Paul was pursuing the goal of Christ-likeness as a disciplined athlete, if you will, of, of Jesus Christ. He was moving in that direction. That's what he wanted. He wanted a, a total, perfect, beautiful, sinless relationship with Jesus Christ. But that's not possible in this life. Complete and final fellowship with Christ comes either at our death or at the resurrection and the second coming, right? Until then, we walk, we fight, we struggle, we strain to know Christ better, to love Him more. We focus on Jesus. We don't focus on behavior. The legalist emphasizes this external conformity the power of the flesh. The, the legalist wants to white-knuckle their way through life. I can do this if I try harder. You know, with just a little bit more self-discipline, I've got it. The Christian says, I don't have it. I, I don't have it together. I, I need a Savior, and, and I need Jesus. I need to be closer to Him. The closer I am to Him, the, the farther away I am from sin. The Christian stresses dependence on Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Dependence on Christ. I cannot do this on my own. I'm incapable. I don't have the strength. I don't have the determination. I don't have the discipline. I don't have the capacity to, to live the perfect Christian life. I completely depend on Jesus Christ. That's what the Christian says. It doesn't mean that sinning is okay. It doesn't mean that you minimize when you fail and, and when you rebel. But your focus is on Christ. He's going to continue. He says, for the prize. I press on toward the goal for the prize. The prize for the Christian is perfect fellowship with Christ. The, the, the eradication of, of the sin nature and and. and, and a complete maturity, a complete spiritual maturity. That's what we get. It's beautiful. Prize 
of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There's an upward calling to move towards Christ. Fellowship with Christ is progressive. It gets better over time. Each step of a deeper fellowship with Christ is a, is a step towards heaven and the complete reality of Jesus. This is, this is what we get, a complete reality of Jesus. We, we get a perfect relationship with him. It's not marred by sin. It's beautiful. All right, so we, we've, we've torn the scripture apart. How do we apply that? How do we apply it? Look, I don't know any Judaizers today. If you know one, raise your hand, because I don't. I, I don't know if they're around anymore. In fact, I don't think they are. So, there are no Judaizers. We don't have to worry about Judaizers coming into our church, coming in to, to try to teach us this same heresy. But what we do have, we may not have Judaizers, but we do have legalists, right? Legalists are still around. Uh, in fact, legalism is a major problem in the church, in the Christian church, in, in the American church, in the Montana church, in, 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 in the Baptist churches, right? Legalism is still a problem. Okay, so let's look at the different kinds of legalism. First of all, uh, there's classical. Uh, this view says that a Christian comes to a place where his, ex, uh, uh, in, in his uh, experience or in his life where he does not consciously sin any longer. Okay? And so th this is a type of legalism. So that what this person will do is this person will come in and they'll say, look, um, I might sin, but it's not my fault. I didn't mean to do it. I'm not going to consciously make the decision to sin. And so essentially they live as though they're perfect. And there's a, there's a famous uh, pastor evangelist who taught this, and uh, his name is John Wesley. John Wesley taught this type of perfectionism. Okay? Wesley believed uh, that perfection was attainable in this life. He never claimed to have attained that perfection. But what he did do is he claimed to know people that he thought did attain it. Does that make sense? So Wesley did not say, look, I'm perfect. I've got it taken care of. What Wesley did is Wesley said, look, it is possible, and I know some people that I, that I think are there. I think they've got it. They're not sinning at least consciously. It's a form of legalism. Uh, those who claim to, to reach this level, um, they, they, they're usually filled with pride and, and unable to communicate with, with the real world around them. They, they really are. In fact, I, I knew someone um, who kind of fell into this. He was a, he was a, a pastor. He was, he was a Methodist pastor is, is where he was. He claimed that since he uh, was ordained, he had never sinned. Um, what he claimed. I told him he was full of garbage, but it's true. Um, anyway, um, that's, that's one area of legalism. Another one would be victorious life legalism. Uh, this says that one can be perfect um, for their particular stage of life, okay? And so, Think of it like this, like um, I'm, I'm on certain, this certain level of Christianity and, and I can have temporary moments of perfection in my level, okay? Uh, so I'm going to have where I'm on, 
I don't, I don't know if they name their levels, but I'm on level three Christianity, and I've accomplished everything. I've accomplished all the temptations that are coming my way. I've defeated them. I don't need to worry about it. And so um, there's really no sin in my life right now because I'm, I'm on this level, and, and I've defeated it, and I'm, I guess, ready to go to level four or five or whatever. Right? That, that's silly. They, they view it as kind of a momentary victory over sin. The next area, I would say, is, is most common in the evangelical church. It's called moral legalism. And um, this is, again, it's, it's most common in, um, in the evangelical church. What happens here is Christians will make up their own lists of do's and don'ts, which are based on primarily opinion or culture or tastes or preferences, but hardly ever Scripture. Okay, and so uh, what this looks like is uh, this is going to be uh, hairstyle, dress length, movies, TV, music, uh, dancing, makeup, whatever, whatever these lists are, right? And so uh, what they'll do is they'll say, okay, um, women can't have hair, whatever, below their shoulders. And if they do, then they're sinful and they're wrong. Even though Scripture never says that. Scripture doesn't say that. So scripture doesn't tell you how long your hair is allowed to be, but what happens is under moral legalism, they'll, they'll create these lists of do's and don'ts. You have to stay away from these things, and you have to do these things. And my reasoning is because of culture, because of taste, because of preference, because I decided that I don't think that that is right. The problem is you can't, you can't give biblical authority to your own opinions. That is wrong, and that is legalism. The thought is because they do or don't do these things, they're, they're spiritual. They've arrived. They've achieved their own standard of, of human righteousness. But the same crowd who is so against uh, all, all of this stuff, and, and it, it varies from, from person to person, but uh, who's, all, who's uh, the person who is a moral legalist might be caught up in pride, gossip, harsh attitudes, division, backbiting, uh, abuse, any number of things that are taught against in Scripture. But because they're so focused on the secondary issues, the moral issues that aren't mentioned in Scripture, they completely ignore the ones that are. And so, I, and that's essentially what the Pharisees did that Jesus attacked constantly. The Pharisees were saying, look, we have all these traditions. We have all of this stuff that we're concerned about, and I'm not, not as concerned... In, in the scriptures. But that's what they do. Another one is religious legalism. Um, this person uh, may have some experience or, or set or, or experience that, that they set up as kind of a uh, criteria for spiritual maturity. And uh, one of the big ones that I know of are there are a lot of people today who think that if you have the gift of speaking in tongues, that that is like uh, the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. Now, take away the argument of whether or not that gift is still active, okay? But people believe this, and they say, if you can speak in tongues, then, you, then you're spiritually mature. You, you, you're, you're there. You've arrived, and so these people, they, they can involve themselves in all sorts of 
immoral, terrible things. But as long as they're convinced that they can still speak in tongues, they view themselves as spiritually mature. That's how they view it. Then our last one is doctrinal legalism. Uh, this one is, is actually pretty common too. Uh, these people say that if, if a person holds to a particular doctrinal creed or emphasis, then they are spiritually mature. Okay? Um, they, they decided that knowing and agreeing with certain doctrines are the test of spirituality or maturity. I see this one, um, to be honest, most commonly with Calvinists. Okay? Now, um, I'm not bashing Calvinists. I, I'm a Calvinist. I am. But when, when, what we, when what we do is we say you have to accept this doctrine, and if you don't necessarily agree with this doctrine, then you are not spiritually mature. When we do that, that's silly, and that's legalism is what it is. There, there are many Christians who know a great deal of doctrine. They're, they're brilliant people, and they're, they're reading you know, theological books from hundreds of years ago, and, and they know more than, than I ever will. But they lack love. They lack compassion. They lack the application of the Scriptures. They're not mature just because they know a doctrine or a creed. That, that's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is being consumed by, we said this at the beginning, is being completely consumed by the person of Jesus Christ, by absolutely loving Him, by absolutely relying on Him, by absolutely depending on Him and wanting nothing to do with anything that will damage your relationship with Him. That's, that's spiritual maturity. And there are signs of it you know, there, there are some, uh, some exteriors that are going to demonstrate that you are spiritually mature, but we're not to focus on those external actions. We're to focus on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. When we focus on the primary, Jesus Christ, then the secondary falls into place. That's what happens. Because we love Jesus as first in our life, we're going to care about spending time in his word. As we spend time in his word, we're going we're gonna to learn what he expects of us and what the good things are and the things that we should stay away from. We're going to know what is sin and how to define it and how to stay away from it. We're going to know how to identify false teachers and stay away from that. All because we focus on Jesus. It's beautiful. It's the Christian life. Look, it, you know, maybe there are people here who, who Christ is not saved. It is, it is possible that maybe you confused church membership or baptism or, or being a Baptist or good works or legalism or, or man-made religion with authentic Christianity. But I have to tell you that Christianity is Christ. You cannot be a Christian without Christ. And if you, if you don't know the resurrected and living Christ personally, then you are not a Christian. And doing good works is, is fine and good, but that's not going, you're not going to be saved from it. Serving and, and giving and attending and all of those things are wonderful and great, but they're not going to save you. If you are without Christ... 
if you are without Christ, I, I, I pray that you will see your lost condition. I do. I pray, that, I pray that he will reveal himself to you. I pray that you will see the sins in your life. Because unless Christ invades your life, you will never see heaven. And I, I don't know a way to, to say it more clearly. Unless Christ saves you, unless you are saved by Jesus Christ, you will never see heaven. So I, I, I beg you to ask Christ to save you before it's too late. Unless Christ takes the initiative to convict you and draw you to himself and you respond by trusting him as your Savior, you will not be saved. You'll perish. You'll be condemned. And that's serious business. Jesus is the way that we're saved. And once you are saved, Jesus is the prize. We look to him. We run towards him. We we glorify him. we, We serve him. When we fail and when we sin, we don't hide it. We don't, we don't sweep it under the rug or minimize it. We repent and apologize and seek forgiveness and keep our eyes towards him because we're not going to be perfect, but, but that's still not okay. We, we don't justify our sins. We say it's, it's awful and I hate the fact that I do this because I want Jesus. I want to glorify him. I want a perfect relationship with him. That's what we're striving for. That's what we're looking for. And that's the prize, a perfect, a perfect relationship with him where, where sin does not interrupt. 